Good morning, Christ Church. Knowing where we are in our study through the Gospel of Matthew and our passage this week where Jesus casts the demons into the herd of pigs, someone sent me a cartoon this week. It's um, different animals around uh, the infant Jesus, and they're all saying what they can bring to him. And so the dove says, I'll bless him at his baptism, and the donkey says, I'll carry him into Jerusalem. And the pig says, I'll let him fill me with demons, and then I'll jump off a cliff. (laughs) Doesn't quite make sense for the life of the pig, unfortunately. There will be other times in Matthew's gospel where we get a chance to talk about spiritual warfare. That's not the focus of our sermon today, however. Um, Instead, today we are going to talk about faith. And this has to be one of the most famous passages in all of the gospel. Jesus asleep in the boat while the storms are coming around, the waters whipping into the boat, and the disciples are so scared, waking him up. Sometimes faith is powerful. You think about faith, and you think about the way it, it delivers this power towards goodness. This past Monday was Martin Luther King Day, and um, every year for about the past maybe seven or eight years, I've read letter, Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail, and it is an amazing read if you've never read it before. Dr. King's writing from a prison, and he's explaining to, uh, to kind of public at large, but also particularly to eight clergy people who have kind of questioned, why are you participating in this resistance, this nonviolent resistance that you're leading? And he gives this beautiful and kind of situated in a biblical and and historical Christian perspective of why he's doing what he's doing. But he says something really powerful in there. Um, He says, if anyone wants to join with our movement, we first ask them, are you willing to be struck and to not strike back? Because that's the only way to participate with us. And the only way to have a power that enables you to be struck and not strike back is a faith rooted in God. This faith, we're talking about faith today, faith that delivers power towards goodness, power that can even upend society, can renovate the heart, but can also change the world around us. Faith sometimes feels and is very powerful. And... At other times, faith feels truly hard. Things don't turn out the way that we want them to turn out or the way we expect them to turn out. We go through trials of different types. Faith can feel like a daily slog, like just trying to put one foot in front of the other feels like an act of courage faced against a headwind that you're living into. Sometimes we go through serious crises. Other times there's just day-to-day living with doubts and questions swirling and seeming difficult to follow our king. Today is Sanctity of Life Sunday, and some of you might know what that means. It's a relatively recent innovation in the church calendar that a number of churches participate in. And it's a Sunday where um, today we remember that all life is precious, especially life uh, in utero. Life at conception, life of the unborn, all life is precious. That is a true statement, and we remember that. And in my own life, I have watched young mothers very close to me raise children without fathers, on minimal support, doing it to try and honor God in a way that takes courageous faith, faith against the odds, faith that is difficult, not an easy, everything just kind of comes together type of faith. 
So here's a dual reality. On the one hand, this faith can be so powerful, it literally can change the world around you. And on the other hand, faith often can be difficult, can be mired in doubts, questions swirling around, faith that feels like a slog. Both of these happening simultaneously. Today we're talking about faith. And so if you have your Bible open to Matthew chapter 8, and I want us to dive into this scene where Jesus, uh, Matthew the author, um, reminds us, shows us what Jesus thinks of with faith, how, he, how Jesus begins to talk about faith. And in our study of Matthew, uh, Matthew is going to use one of his favorite words today. It's the word follow. This word follow shows up 24 times in the Gospel of Matthew, shows up three times in our passage today in just a few verses together. Verse 19, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, follow me. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. Verse 23, and when he, Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. I want to offer a suggestion in this sermon that faith at its core can be reduced to one word, and it's the word follow. Following who? Following Jesus. Following how? By aligning our hearts to him. Following when? Not just when it's convenient, but at all times of life, the daily and the crises, following why? Because he invited us. Not because we found God, but because God found us. Which brings us back again to faith. And in Matthew chapter eight, there's a pattern that is emerging. And you remember Matthew is, he's writing this story down. Matthew, the, the, the gospel writer who compiles this, is an eyewitness of Jesus. You know, he didn't just wake up one morning and think, you know, I've got a, a story that I want to share with the internet. I've got some, some, an article I want to put out there, some clickbait that I hope people will know me. He has seen something, he's encountered something, and he wants other people to encounter the same person that he's encountered. So he composes this story, and as he's recollecting on all the events of Jesus's life, uh, he puts them together in such a way that even the, the arrangement of how he puts things together starts to show something about Jesus. Here's how chapter eight uh, all comes together. Jesus, remember, has just come down from the Sermon on the Mount, and at the beginning of the chapter, he has these powerful healing miracles. He heals uh, a leper. He heals the, uh, the servant of a centurion. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. We looked at this last week. The chapter begins with Jesus demonstrating his power over sickness, and then the chapter ends with miracle after miracle as he calms this storm, or as he casts out these demons into these pigs. Jesus' power over chaos, and in the middle, there's these groups of followers, and we get to see the response of his followers, and we find out there's a right and a wrong way to follow Jesus. If you've ever had to deliver bad news to someone, there's kind of a strategy sometimes that you'll do, which goes something like this. Um, say something, and then close, start with a good thought, and then close with a good thought, and in the middle, say the hard thing that you want to tell them. Put that, that part right in the middle. Um, that's kind of what's happening here in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to start, Jesus is powerful over miracles. We're going to end, Jesus is powerful over all chaos. And then right in the middle, here's the thing, and how do we respond? How do we follow? It's kind of how Matthew has arranged this material. We're going to look at these two followers, these, these two would-be followers, and then we're going to look at the disciples, the ones who are actually following Jesus. The would-be followers, I have to tell you all, this week as I was studying this passage, I was a little confused as I got into this. Because don't these two people come forward? This is in verse 19. Don't these two people come forward and they say things like, 
teacher, I'm here to follow you. And doesn't this other guy say, I'll, I'll follow you, just first let me take care of some personal matters. It doesn't seem to make sense on the surface. These two seem very faithful. But as you get into it a little bit, Jesus isn't just replying to their words. He's replying to their hearts. He goes under the surface to reply to the desires and the intentions of their heart, and they have a different agenda than simply following Jesus. There's a right way and a wrong way to follow, and Matthew's first going to show us how not to follow Jesus. So look at this first man in verse 19. It says this man is a scribe, which is kind of like a professional Bible teacher. He's a, a professional religious scholar. And in verse 19, he says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And as you start to get under kind of the, what's the heart of what he's saying? Um, you might say something like this, like, Jesus, today, it's your lucky day. Me, the Bible scholar, I'm here to follow you. I'm here to contribute to the movement. I'm putting myself, I'll come in to whatever you're doing, but here I am. Some emphasis on self. He calls Jesus teacher, and that's significant, but it's actually not significant in a good way. Throughout all the Gospel of Matthew, all the followers of Jesus always call Jesus Lord. It's the enemies of Jesus who call him merely teacher. It's like Matthew's giving us a clear sign here. Something's up with this guy. Again, you can sense his heart. Jesus, here I am, an important person. Probably your movement needs me. It's like, Jesus, I've heard you're trying to, you're going to Jerusalem. You're eventually going to overthrow Herod. You're going to need guys like me, guys on the inside, guys with connections. You're going to need guys who know the Bible and can also connect with other people. I'm the kind of person needed in your movement if you want to be the king. And I would say, here's a caution. Beware of anything in your heart whenever you start saying, God, you need me to do something for you. That's veiled pride. God never needs you, never needs any of us. You know what it says in, uh, when, when Jesus calls the 12 disciples to himself? He doesn't call those whom he needed. He calls those whom he wanted. You are always invited. You are always welcomed. You are always encouraged to take a step forward, but you're never absolutely needed, properly speaking. You're not needed by God, but you are wanted by him. But this man thinks he's needed. Jesus is showing a mirror to his heart, and it's a mirror of pride. Faith and pride don't mix. We're invited into humility, to setting aside ourselves, to saying, God, here I am, poor, simple man, woman as I am. Uh, use me, but I, I feel invited by you, but, I, but it's all about you. That's the first man. Second man, the second man seems like he makes a really good request. Let me go and care for my father. Let me go and, and bury my father. And we don't know if his father is actually died or is in the process of dying or is just an older person and he's in the next couple of years he's going to have to do this. We don't know exactly when this is in the man's life, but it seems like a really good request. Like Jesus shouldn't deny a request like this. There's even a commandment about it. Honor your father and mother. It seems like he would be doing the right thing, right? Like that's when you, you read this and so you're wondering what is going on why is Jesus telling this person not to, to follow him? Many have pointed out that while we don't have the full conversation between Jesus and this man, we hear it all with the first word. What's the first word the man says? First. First, Jesus, let me attend to the things I think are most important in my life, and then I'll come back and follow you. First, let me take care of what I need to take care of, 
and then let me come back to you. You know, there are times in the gospel where Jesus says these things that make us a little uncomfortable, frankly. He challenges us. I've heard it said that if you never feel challenged by God, you might not be worshiping God. Like there, there ought to be times where you feel deeply comforted, but there also ought to be times when, you cha- when he feels like he challenges you. And so there's moments in the gospel of Matthew where we see statements like these, where Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. You can't serve God money. And we, we, start, we agree with that. But then he, he starts to say things like, starts cutting closer to our hearts, anyone who loves their father, their mother, their son, their daughter, even their own life more than me cannot be my follower. We start to feel a little bit more uncomfortable with that. With this second man, this would-be follower, Jesus is revealing his heart. And Jesus is saying, you don't want to follow me. You want me plus other things. You want me plus your conveniences. You want me plus the, the, the ways that you want to live, the priorities that you want to live. You don't know that I'm going to be coming back. You don't know that I'm going to cross it. You never know if this is the only moment you'll ever have with me to follow me. And instead, in the moment, you're opting to do something else. Jesus holding a mirror up to his heart saying, you love me plus many other things. And again, it might, it, 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 it might feel tough, like I'm not fully satisfying. Yes, but isn't it important to, to honor your father, father and mother? Isn't it important that this man would, would go and do this? But I would say, remember, Christianity is not about primarily following a set of rules. If it was just about keeping rules, uh, there would be many of us who are good at that. Any Enneagram ones? <laughs> Y'all are great rule keepers. You people keep rules so well. You want to know the, the rules of the board game? And you do them. And you follow them. And everyone else is like, yeah, they're the ones. They can do it. Like, they just, they have it away. Like, are any type A people or perfectionists or people like, if Christianity, if all it is, is just following the rules. And any time a person is dead, that we have to go and bury them in that exact moment, many of us would win the game. But it's not about following rules per se, primarily, though there are rules, though there are laws, following a person and a God-revealed person, God who has revealed himself in the person of Jesus. So when Jesus is speaking to this man in his heart, what he's doing is he's looking at him and saying, listen, right now, what you need more than anything else is to let everything else go and follow me. This is your moment right now to reprioritize your life, to to have a different set of of orientation around how your life is going. What is being a follower all about? Being a follower is learning to align your heart with the heart of Jesus, aligning your heart with the master's heart. So when I think about aligning your heart, I think about words like this, um, learning, apprentice, on a journey, not yet perfect, We think of words like surrender, surrendering to God, or repentance, which means daily turning back to God. I think of spiritual practices like stillness and contemplative prayer so that you can pay attention to the voice of God. There is a a prayer that was written about 500 years ago by a man named Ignatius of Loyola. And uh, this is a prayer that most days when I wake up in the morning, before I get out of bed, if I can remember to do it, I pray this prayer. And it's a way of beginning to align my heart back to God's. 
When people tell me they're in a season of discernment where they've got to make a decision about job or relocation or school or anything else going on, uh, I often tell them just about once a day, try and pray this prayer that brings your heart back into alignment. That's what Jesus is trying to do with this man, with, with both of these men. He's trying to bring their hearts into alignment. The prayer goes like this. It says, take Lord and receive all my liberty, my freedoms, my memory, my understanding, my entire will. That is the heart, that central part of you, the, the thing that you call yourself. Take and, take and receive it all, God. All I have and call my own because you have given it all to me. And so to you, Lord, I return it. And you hear in that this kind of sense of like my heart, this, this part of me, I just, I just offer it back up to you, God. As I'm beginning my day, I offer this back up to you. As I'm making a major decision in life, I offer it back up to you. Can you imagine either of these men praying this? Everything is yours. My father is yours. My teaching career is yours. So do with it what you will. But give me only your love and your grace because that is enough for me. We see these two men on their own terms trying to, to say, Jesus, let me negotiate the terms of me following you. Wait until I'm ready to follow you, and then I'll follow you. Or you need me, God. Don't you need me? But that's not the core of faith. The core of faith, the heart of faith, following who? Following Jesus, the God revealed as Jesus. Following how? By aligning, realigning, reorienting our hearts to his, laying down pride, prioritizing him above all else. We're going to look at the, the rest of the disciples now, move on to the second story, and another aspect of following. And if these two men show us a negative picture of following, the disciples uh, actually show us, I think, a positive picture of following Jesus. The disciples sometimes get a bad rap because they're waking Jesus up in the boat and seems like they don't have faith, but I actually think there's something really right on about what they're doing here. So let's look at them. Jesus dismisses the crowds. He turns away these would-be followers. He tells his disciples, we're going across to the other side of the lake, and a storm begins to rise. And here's the famous moment. Storm is rising, all right? The, the winds are whipping around. The water's starting to rise. You can imagine the sky is dark overhead. Matthew uses this word. Uh, he says, there's a great seismos. And you might hear the word in their seismic scale. What's the seismic scale? What does it measure? Seismic scale measures earthquakes. Matthew says there's, there's something like a seismos that's happened here. Something that's like the water is trembling. Maybe the, the earth was trembling. The air is vibrating. Like, actually, this is kind of scary. This could be kind of terrifying to walk outside in. He says we're, we're all in this boat alone kind of being pitched to and for. And Jesus, of all people, you're sleeping right now. Like, Jesus, you're asleep in the middle of the storm. The disciples wake him up as if begging, don't you care what happens? Like, don't you care what happens? And uh, I love the way Deacon Eric read this a moment ago. He's kind of heard in his voice this Jesus giving a gentle rebuke. He kind of says something like, um, you little faithful ones, didn't you know you're safe? Winds be still, calms the storm. You hear him like both rebuking and, and actually encouraging them in just that moment. People in the church throughout the ages have loved this moment because it kind of paints a picture of like, isn't this what life is kind of like all the time? Aren't we always feeling like we're in the boat with Jesus and he's never quite moving as quickly as we want? 
He's never quite doing the things that we want him to do. We have this faith in Jesus, but it, it feels like the, the waters of life are constantly coming over our head. Feels like that a little bit. Doesn't he care for us? And I just want to reflect on that question for a little bit. If this picture, if this boat, this is kind of this iconic moment represents what we feel like life is like a lot of times, let's just reflect on why does, why does Jesus stay asleep in the boat then? Why are we going to the storms? Why might he do that? And um, I was just reading through different, uh, different church theologians, different pastors through history, and here are some of the ways the church historically has answered, why does Jesus let us go through the storms of life? Here's the first question, or the first answer. Because in letting us go into these storms, Jesus is building resilience against despair. John Chrysostom, an early preacher, said, Jesus takes the disciples with him, training and coaching them against despair. Let's you go into the storms of life to, to help teach you how to push back against despair, to begin to trust that he is with you and that the darkness of whatever despair you feel ultimately won't overcome you. One of the ways I think about this is um, newborn babies. You're holding them all the time. They are constantly, you know, they've got the smell of their parents just in their nostrils all the time. As they start to grow, they get a little bit bigger. They're toddlers. They're one years old. And if you've ever seen maybe a one-year-old or a, an 18-month-old start to learn how to walk, they're very bad at it, actually. They, it, no one starts off running. You start off crawling and then, and then stumbling and falling quite a bit. And the picture of the parent, what is the parent always doing? down on their knees, not too far from the kid, hands out, just outside of their reach, saying, start walking towards me, start stumbling towards me, building resilience, giving them an opportunity to develop their, their strength and their sense of balance just outside, there with them, but just a little bit further out. Jesus lets us go through coaching us against despair through the storms of life. It takes immense courage to continue to follow Jesus. It takes courage to continue showing up in these storms of life. We, last night, we had a newcomer's dinner, and um, as people were sharing their stories about ways they've become, begun to come into Christ church, everyone's story is marked by some kind of just challenge that they've had to overcome in their life. And I was kind of just aware in the moment, as I often am aware as a pastor, I'm privileged to hear so many of your stories. And I'm constantly thinking like, my goodness, these people have such resilient faith. And even if it doesn't feel like that, even as I'm saying these things right now, you might be thinking, yeah, but if you really knew me, if you really knew the, the, how little my faith is, I want to say, no way. You're here this morning. You've somehow made a choice to put one foot in front of the other and, and keep on building resilience. Keep on saying in the middle of whatever I'm going on in life, the craziness or just everyday difficulty. Remember faith that is powerful, but also faith that can be weak. Here I am, God, and I'm trying a little bit more today. He lets us go through the storms because it builds a resilience against the despair. The despair of the world, the despair of our own hearts because we learn to trust him. We learn to trust he is with us in the boat. We are not alone. Second reason that he allows us to go through these storms of life is because actually in going through the storms, we are formed. We are made more into his image. We are refined to look more like Jesus, even in the trials. Think about this, that anytime, uh, if you want to shape metal, you know, you, you think of um, 
like a smith or something like that, a smithy, that the only way to begin shaping metal is first you have to heat it up. You have to get it really hot so that it's finally bendable, finally pliable. And we go through these storms in life so that our hearts become pliable to God's mercy, that we can take in more of his mercy, that finally the mercy that we've heard about for so much, it begins to shape us. And we really begin to believe God truly is with us even in the storms. If we could avoid trials, we would, right? If you could choose in your life, do I want to have a difficult life or an easier life? Which one would you like to choose? There's no question about that, right? Like if you were drawing, if you had to draw your your life out, starting in point A, ending in point B, and you could draw it completely straight, no peaks, no valleys, just straight through, you would. And so would I. Because we prefer not to go through these trials, but in avoiding them, we also aren't formed the way God wants to form us sometimes. Sometimes it's only in the heat of trials themselves that our lives become tender to receiving his mercy, to trusting he is with us in the boat. We were, this past week, our staff got to go to a staff retreat, and we we do this about twice a year, and um, the purpose of this one was just kind of some bonding and prayer together, and we actually got to go to Lady Lodge, which was a huge gift. Yeah, woo is right. (laughs) Huge gift and and generosity of the church to allow us to do that, and um, while we were there, if you've never been there, it's it's cut out. There's this river flowing through a canyon. You're hiking around. Just the, the beauty of God's creation is all around you. And there was an uh, art installation that was being set up. We kind of got a behind-the-scenes tour with some of the artists, and they're describing their work, and it's a creation-focused art exhibit. And we're talking to the artist. One of the artists has like put a 17-foot mural of all different types of um, of flora that, that grow around the land onto a wall, and she's describing this to us. And I'm speaking with her after she does this explanation. A little bit later, I'm speaking with her, and we start. I, she starts sharing her story with me, and something she said is that she's been through all these twists and turns in life, has been through challenges in life, has not arrived. Where she is right now is never where she would have expected herself to go. But in it, God has been just somehow using all the twists and turns to actually shape her. And then she said this phrase that really struck me. She said, I don't think any of us plan our lives the way we think they're going to go. And I know that I couldn't possibly live how I'm living without Christ. There's something about we're in the storms because even there, our hearts are formed even in the valleys, on the mountains and in the valleys and in the commonness of everyday life, our hearts are formed to become like his. Lastly, why does he allow us to go through these storms? Here's one final thought. To confront our doubts. To confront our doubts. Sometimes people think that in order for faith to be real, faith needs to feel very strong, like the strength of my faith. I need to feel like I'm level 100 faithing all the time, you know? Like I'm, I'm maxed out faithing all the time. But actually, in this passage, I would say the disciples feel quite weak in their faith. Because you, you see what they say. They say, on the one hand, they say, Jesus, wake up because you can save us. They've got faith in the right person. But then they also say, we're about to die. We don't think you're going to save us unless we get you up and cause you to notice what's going on. If I'm measuring faith, I would not put that as a maxed out faith. You know, 
There's some, some weakness even in their faith right there. They have some doubts themselves. They're not reclined in a peaceful posture, eyes closed, saying everything is fine. There's some fear. Their doubts about God are confronted in the boat. And I wonder for many of us as we go through trials of life, is that where your doubts about God become confronted? And that's where you've been wondering, does he care about me? That starts to hit into your heart a little bit. Everyone doubts God at some point. And that's just, that's true of the nature of the word faith. In order to have faith, you can't be sure about exactly how God is going to respond. He's living. He's alive. He's active. He doesn't respond always in the ways that we might expect, but faith is choosing forward, this one step in front of the other, saying, not knowing for sure, but somehow trusting you're in the boat with me in the middle of this, even with the uncertainties. As we confront doubts, we confront our doubts, what we have the opportunity to do is to bring our hearts back into alignment again. And just to acknowledge, God, that I feel my heart going 50 different ways, and I just want to bring it into alignment with you. And just say, I want to try and surrender as best I can and keep walking with you day after day. Confronting your doubts puts you in a position where you say, though I can't see you, though you might be sleeping in the boat, I still want to align my heart to you. And I've alluded to this before because for me, um, people with, with doubts, people who struggle with doubts, uh, it's, a, it's a tender spot in my heart. It's something in my own life as an adult that even as a, a, a minister that I have and sometimes do wrestle with is how in, in the world looking the way it does, how in my life looking the way it does, God, are you always real? Are you always there? And faith is saying, Jesus, you're, you're in the boat. You're, you're sleeping with me, and I'm still walking forward in the goodness and somehow the confidence that you're here. This passage that I'm about to read, it's from um, it's a book called uh, Screwtape Letters, and it's one that I often turn to when, when I'm just confronted with my own doubts. C.S. Lewis uh, is an author from the, the last century, and this book, Screwtape Letters, it's written from the perspective of two demons talking back and forth to one another. If you've never read it, it's fantastic. And so everything that, that is said between these two demons, you almost kind of like have to flip it on its head. When they, when they talk about God, when they, when they talk about the enemy, uh, they're talking about God. When they talk about the Father, they actually mean Satan. So it's a, a total inverse. But this is such a powerful passage. Look at this. It says, sooner or later... He's one demon talking to another about a season of doubt. Sooner or later, God withdraws, if not in fact, at least from their conscious experience, all those supports and incentives. And it's during these trough periods, the, the valleys of life, much more than during the mountaintop peaks, that the, the human is growing into the sort of creature God wants them to be. Hence, the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those which please him best. Have you ever gone through a difficult season? a season wondering about your faith and still tried to pray. And you feel like your prayers aren't rising very high at all. And in those moments, what Lewis is saying is maybe those are the most powerful prayers you've ever prayed. He, God, wants these humans to learn to walk and he must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he will be pleased even with their stumbles. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but intending to do our enemy's will, to do God's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of God seems to have vanished, asks why he has been forsaken, and yet still obeys. To have to contend with your doubts 
and to say, and somehow, Jesus, I do think you're in the boat with me. I do think you're there, and I'm going to continue to sail on as if you are, even if I don't see you waking up in my life. Lewis says, there is never a time as powerful as that when the demons most shudder. All that faith requires of you is this, that you offer and align your heart, weak as it might feel, weak as it might be, saying, God, I I align my heart to you and your purposes. By faith, I'm going to stay in the boat with you as best I know how. Let's pray together. Kind Father, I, I hear so much of your tenderness in this passion, even with your rebuke for us to have more faith. There's a tenderness accepting us where we are, calling us deeper into life with you. Father, we pray for the gift to believe you more wholeheartedly, that you would send your Holy Spirit into our hearts to have ongoing conversation with you throughout our days, ongoing relationship with you. God, for those of us who feel Faith is powerful. Faith is strong. Faith that moves us into action. We are grateful. And in gratitude, that itself, faith, is a gift from you. So we offer our lives back up to you. And for those of us who feel weak, who feel distant, who feel perhaps cold or even numb, God, would you send even more deeply the gift of faith to us? We love you. We want to love you more. It's in your name we pray. Amen.